Good morning. My name is Zach Anderson. My wife, Julie, and I have had the privilege of working here in Beijing for the last year and a half with our two sons, Eli and Jasper. And it's a great privilege for me to be able to stand in front of you this morning. As I was thinking about what I might share, I realized that I have to apologize. I, I need to start off by telling you a quick personal story about myself because I feel like that's going to set the stage for some of the things that we might want to talk about this morning. Uh, even though I am an American, when I was younger, I did not live in America. I lived in the Eastern European country of Hungary, which is where my parents were working. So what that meant was I had a, a fairly Hungarian childhood. I had a lot of Hungarian friends. And I can remember when I was about 12 years old, almost every weekend, my friends and I would go out to the movies to watch a film because we loved movies. But when I was 12 years old, there was one particular kind of film that we liked more than any other. And these were movies starring Bruce Lee. I just loved Bruce Lee. I could not get enough of him. It got to the point where my friends and I had watched every single one of Bruce Lee's films so many times that we could tell anyone the plot to every single one of them. But to be honest with you, that's not really that amazing because every single one of Bruce Lee's films basically has the same story. <laughs> in fact, I can tell you what it is right now. So imagine that you're sitting in a movie theater Looking up at the screen, the movie begins. The first thing you would see is none other than Bruce Lee, a young, happy man walking down the road, no problems in his life. But then you would see another man. This man had dark eyes. This man had an angry face. You would realize at that moment that this man is the evil man. And the evil man in Bruce Lee's films always wants to do two things. He wants to hurt Bruce Lee's family, and he wants to take away Bruce Lee's home. And so he sends in an army of evil men to beat up and torment and harass Bruce Lee's family members, but always one of his family members escapes. And he runs up to Bruce Lee, his face is all bloody, and he says something like, Bruce Lee, your, your family needs you. And at that moment... Bruce Lee's face changes, and we realize he will never be innocent again because now he is bent on revenge. And so Bruce Lee would single-handedly destroy the entire evil army, but this was always a strange moment because the evil army would stand around him in a giant circle, and they would just attack him one by one. And I remember thinking, even as a 12-year-old, guys, if you all jumped at the same time, you could probably kill him, but that's not how it happened. And finally, at the end of the movie, Bruce Lee would stand here, the evil man would stand here, they'd kind of glare at each other, and then Bruce Lee would say something like, you tried to hurt my family. You tried to take away my home. You are evil. You will die. And then would be the final massive 20-minute fight that would be everywhere, like on the ground, flying through the air, on the roof. And at the end of this fight, Bruce Lee would squeeze all of his anger into his fist, and he would strike the evil man so hard that from the blow, the evil man would die. And Bruce Lee would express his satisfaction by kind of yelling out this weird yell. Argh! And in the theater, my friends and I watching would go, yeah! And then, practically walking out of the theater, we're chanting his name, Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee. What I'm trying to tell you is, when I was 12 years old, I wanted to be Bruce Lee. And I remember going to my parents one day and saying, guys, 
I know who I want to be when I grow up. And my parents said, who? And I said, I want to be Bruce Lee. And they said, how will you do that? I said, that's a good question. First, I have to learn how to use Kung Fu because I'll be able to kill people with my hands and my feet. Well, my parents did not let let me learn Kung Fu, but they did let me learn Judo, which some of you may know is a little bit more like wrestling. In Judo, you're not using hits or kicks. Instead, you're using kind of a series of takedowns to pull the opponent to the ground. So my best friend and I bought judo clothes, and every Tuesday and Thursday, we would go in the evening to judo class. It was great. We would show up, change into our clothes, go into the main gymnasium, and there we would meet our teacher, who we called the master. And the master would always have us begin by running laps around the gym, because he said that was going to strengthen our our feet and our, our, our entire lower part of the body for when we actually start learning these various maneuvers. And as I'm running around the gym, I'm thinking to myself, yes, this is exactly what Bruce Lee would do. And then we had to do a series of push-ups and sit-ups to get our bodies conditioned. And as I'm doing that, I'm thinking to myself, yes, Bruce Lee, I am following in your footsteps. And then the master would teach us the various maneuvers. One day the master came in, he had a very serious look on his face, and he said, today you're going to learn something. And the moment that you have learned it, you may never do it again. Because what I'm about to teach you today could kill someone. And my friend and I were like, finally. I mean, this is all we've been waiting for. (laughs) Teach us, master. On this day, he taught us the ultimate choke hold. And I'd like to demonstrate the ultimate choke hold today. Eric, will you come up here for a second? (laughs) Now, um, Eric, much, much stronger than I am, but I know the choke hold. The idea behind the chokehold is you take this arm and then put it like so, grab the bicep of the other arm and put this behind their head. And then all you have to do is squeeze. And if you're holding them right, the air flowing to the lungs will slow down, the blood going to the brain will slow down, and you only have to hold someone like that for a little while and they could die. Thank you, Eric. (laughs) Everything about judo was great, except for one thing. The master had an 18-year-old assistant whose name was Lotzi, very common Hungarian boy's name, and we hated Lotzi because Lotzi hated us. Sometimes the master would allow Lotzi to teach 10 minutes of the class, and when these moments would come, we would hold our heads in agony because when Lotzi taught the class, he always made us run twice as many laps around the room, twice as many push-ups, twice as many sit-ups, and we just had this burning hatred toward Lotzi. One Thursday, I arrived to the location, and the moment I stepped in, I could just tell that something was wrong. I didn't know what it was, but it was almost like the air itself was, was somehow darker. I went into the changing room, started to change. My friend ran in. He had a horrified look on his face, and he said, I just found out. The master is sick. He won't be teaching today. And I said, what should we do? Should we go home? And he said, no. Lotzi is going to teach the whole class. For a moment, we just stood there, and I had this strange sensation run through my body. I couldn't define it, but it was almost like I felt like I couldn't take a breath like I was almost underwater, like I was paralyzed. It was a very strange feeling. And suddenly the feeling broke. We're looking at each other and we jump for our street clothes, thinking if we can change quickly and get out of here, Lutzi will never know that we had come that day. But the next moment, Lutzi came in looking like the devil himself. And he said, everyone, get into the gym. So we quickly changed and ran in there. On that day, he made us run so many laps around the gym. It was like with every step, we were leaving a leg behind us. We had to do so many sit-ups. It was like my entire body was a giant 
cramp. And after all of this punishment, he lines us up in a single file line and begins walking back and forth in front of us like he's the general of some army. And this is what he said. I'm not satisfied with the conduct of this class. It seems like maybe you don't even want to learn judo. And because I'm your teacher, today, we're only going to do one thing. You are going to fight me. Now, Lutzi's 18 years old. We were 12. <laughs> when someone who's 18 fights someone who's 12, it's not a fight. It's, it's a crime. And as I heard this, this, this irrational thought, I, I began to feel this fire burning in the pit of my stomach. But there's Lutzi. In fact, he says, if I don't get a volunteer, I'm going to choose someone. And we're all trying to look away so he won't choose us. The next moment, he looks at my friend next to me and he says, okay, you're first. My poor friend walks forward, stands in front of Lutzi. They bow the way that you do in judo. In the next moment, Lutzi grabbed him so fast, we didn't even know what had happened. He lifted him up into the air, threw him down the ground so hard, I heard a cracking sound come out of my friend's body. And the next moment, I couldn't take anymore. It was like this fire in my stomach suddenly roared throughout my body. It affected my arm, and I suddenly realized that I was volunteering to be next. <laughs> I swear to you, I don't know why I did that. Everybody looked surprised. Even Lutzi looked a little surprised. But then he said, okay, Anderson, come forward. I walked forward. I stood in front of Lutzi, and I looked at him. And at that moment, I realized that I had seen him before. His eyes were dark. His face was angry. He wanted to take away our home, our gymnasium. He wanted to hurt my family, my friends. I realized at that moment, Lutzi was the evil man, and I was Bruce Lee. In the next moment, Lutzi bowed and started coming at me. I did the only thing I could think of. I jumped down onto my knees, and I ran in between his legs. And then three things happened very fast. I spun around, I jumped onto his back, and I grabbed him in the chokehold. And immediately, noise burst out of everywhere. My friends are saying, that's good, Zach, that's good. And Lutzi's yelling, trying to bang my body against the wall so I'll let him go, and my friends are saying, don't let go, Zach, don't let go. But they didn't have to say that because I had already decided that I was never going to let go. And as I'm yanking on his neck, I'm thinking about all those extra laps around the gym, and I'm thinking, Lutzi, today I am the master. But then suddenly I realized Lutzi wasn't moving as much as he was before. <laughs> Not really moving at all, just kind of standing there. Then suddenly he went down onto his knees. Suddenly he was lying flat on his stomach with no movement in his body, and I thought, I hope I have not killed him. But the next moment, I saw him raise his arm and tap my arm three times, which in judo means I surrender. For a second, I didn't want to get off because I thought he was faking it. If I got off, he was going to kill me. But finally, I got off. He rolled over. His face was red, but you know, he was breathing, so he was alive. I looked over at my friend, and he kind of looked at me and sort of went like this. Lutzi stood up, coughed a couple times, and said, well done, Anderson. I think that's all we're going to do today in judo class. <laughs> now, I share this story with you because for me, Many times in my life, I have gone back to that moment when I was standing in the changing room, realizing that the master was gone, realizing that Lutzi was there, and having that strange feeling running through my body. It's, it's such a strange feeling, but the more I think about it, the more I realize that is not the only time in my life that I have experienced that. 
It has, it has often in my life shown up in moments when I'm facing some kind of an important decision or some kind of crucial moment. I know I have to make a decision. I know a lot is riding on this decision, but I don't know what I should do, and I suddenly feel paralyzed. The more I think about it, in fact, I think I could maybe prove that in one way or another, large or small, I experience some version of that feeling practically every single day of my life. And I bet I could prove that each and every one of you may also experience that feeling. What is that feeling? It's a feeling that the more I think about it, is everywhere around me in the culture. If I turn on the television and see an advertisement, the advertisement is using this kind of a feeling. And we've all seen these advertisements that almost seem laughably gimmicky. And not, nonetheless, they sometimes work, where maybe you see someone advertising the latest athletic shoe, and the, the ridiculous words come forth like, you see this shoe? This is the greatest shoe in the world. If you had this shoe, you'd be faster. You'd be, you'd be more powerful. More people would like you. If you don't have this shoe, believe me, people will notice. You will walk down the road, your friends will see you, and they will say, well, look who doesn't have the shoe. And then if just for a moment you ask yourself, maybe I do need that shoe, suddenly that feeling has grabbed you. This is a feeling everywhere in movies. At the end of every year, we find out what the top 10 highest grossing films were, every single one of them uses some version of this feeling. And the, the answer is, what, what is it? What is the feeling that is everywhere in the culture around us? Perhaps we've experienced it every day. It was in me that day in that story. It's very simple. A couple words. I think it's fear or worry. It was fear that I felt that day, deep within me. It's fear that I experience whenever I come up to a moment, I, I'm not sure what to do and, and suddenly feel almost paralyzed. In the commercials, they wouldn't use it if it didn't make money. And in movies, it's, it's an art form. The director knows just how many seconds to wait with the camera before we see the innocent victim attacked by the enemy. In some films, you don't even have to see the enemy. All you have to see is the victim. And the enemy in those films is a lot like the real enemy that we face every single day. The enemy written about in scripture saying, beware your enemy the devil, prowls around like a raging lion, seeking someone to devour. The enemy is very interested in knowing what is it that you're scared of? What really bothers you? And then all he wants to do is dig some traps and wait for you to come along. And you know what? Those traps are waiting for us right now, the minute we step out of this door, in between here and the car or bus that you came in. Some of you know you left some of those traps at home, and you don't want to go home to them, but they're waiting for you. The question is, if we experience some version of this fear and worry every single day of our lives, is there anything that can be done about it? I want to give you a very quick answer, and I want to waste your time. But first, let me tell you a quick story about my father. A few years ago, my father was listening to a radio program. There was an author talking on the program. The author put up a rhetorical question saying, what do you suppose was the sentence that Jesus said more than any other during his time on earth? And my dad thought to himself, that was probably something like, love one another. You know, Jesus, he's a loving guy. There's love all around him. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it was, love one another. And the guy on the radio kept talking and said, I'm sure most of you think that the answer is love one another. But it's not. The thing Jesus said more than any other during his time on earth was don't fear. 
don't worry. Now, if it's inevitable that every person on earth experiences fear and worry every day of their life, why would that be the thing that Jesus said so often? It would almost seem like kind of a waste of time. Well, let me see if I can give you an illustration. I'm going to read a very short, familiar passage from Mark. You can read along with me in your Bible, or you can just look up at the screen. Or if you don't want to read, you don't have to, you can just listen. As evening came, Jesus said to the disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill up with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke up, woke him up, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm, and he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, to understand this story, it helps understand what geographically that particular part of the world looked like. Basically, you had a lot of low rolling hills, but every now and then between the hills, you'd find these cliffs. It's at the bottom of these cliffs that you'd find these lakes. What that meant was if there was a gentle breeze up top, the wind would sometimes hit these cliffs and shear down with great power, picking up sometimes 100 miles per hour speed, basically creating on the surface of the water the same circumstances that you would find in a wind tunnel a wind tunnel designed to put more pressure on something than it should be able to take. What does that mean? That means this was not just any storm. This was a massive storm. We know that because some of the disciples were fishermen. They were used to being out there in the water. They had plenty of experience dealing with storms. They knew just what to do, and they were scared. What kind of a storm could this have been? The waves would have maybe been pounding down from one or two stories high, beating this tiny little boat. The wind was shrieking so much, it almost sounded like a person screaming. Just the sound of the wind was terrifying. Lightning flashing across the sky, one second complete darkness, one second complete light. These are the circumstances the disciples found themselves in, and they felt a very natural feeling. They were scared. And the next moment, they look over, and they see Jesus is asleep. So they do what anyone would have done. They do what I would have done. They go over there and they say, Jesus, we're scared. We're scared. Don't you care about us? Don't you care that we're going to die? These are the words that Jesus woke up to. He saw the disciples. They weren't faking it. Their their faces were probably white. So he stands up, puts out his hand, the next second, an unnatural calm occurs. The literal translation is a great calm occurred. I've heard other huge sounds in my life, huge explosions, huge crashes of every kind. What does a huge calm sound like? One second, Huge waves, shrieking wind, the next second, nothing. The water may have been like glass. The only sound the disciples could maybe hear was the sound of their own breath, because they were still scared. And then Jesus turns and looks at them and says, why are you scared? Where's your faith? And you know what question I have for Jesus right now? You know what question I want to ask Jesus? 
Why did he ask them that? Isn't it obvious why they were scared? The person who wrote this book just went to great lengths to show us they had plenty of reason to be scared. It was a massive storm. It was screaming wind. And what kind of a question is it anyway to ask someone who's scared, why are you scared? If someone's hungry, you don't ask them, why are you hungry? You feed them. If someone's lying somewhere dead, you don't kick the body and say, why are you dead? It's too late. Why would Jesus ask them that? Who does he think he is? And you know why I have that question so often in my life toward Jesus? Because so often in my life, I don't really know who Jesus is. You know what he's saying to them back there 2,000 years ago? He's saying, do you know who I am? Do you know what I'm capable of? I'm Jesus. What have you seen me do so far? People come to me who are sick. They leave feeling better than they've ever felt in their lives. I have power over illness. Right now, a huge storm. The next second, nothing. I have power over the weather. People bring me a few pieces of bread, a few pieces of fish. I make enough to feed 5,000 people. I have power over the physical world. And I'm going somewhere where they're going to kill me. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead, proving I have power over death. I'm Jesus. I am the Son of God. And you could imagine that I would let anything happen to you? You're my brothers. You're my children. You obviously have no idea what I am about to do for you. Whether you believe it or not, those are the words that Jesus turned to his disciples with 2,000 years ago. And whether you believe it or not, those are the words that he is turning toward you with today. The fact is, if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you know that you are secure in your friendship with him, if you know that his death on the cross was for you, it means the next second you experience fear or worry of any kind, you are allowed to take the fear and put it aside. It cannot be any other way. He would not have repeated it so many times and be so surprised that we couldn't understand it if it was inevitable that you were going to fear anyway. That would almost be like Jesus was lying and Jesus can't lie. It means the next time we experience fear or worry of any kind, we are allowed to look at it and say, no, I don't have to. American author, Ernest Hemingway loved bullfighting. In the bullfight, the matador stands in the center holding a small sword and a red cape, which contrary to popular opinion does not have to be red because the bull is colorblind and comes for the movement, not for the color. The bull comes forward. At the last moment, the matador steps aside, pushes a small sword into the bull's neck and shoulder muscles repeatedly until the point that the bull can no longer hold up its head, it can merely stand there. At this point, if the matador believes the bull has been defeated, the matador stands in front of the bull, the matador kneels down before the bull this far away and looks into the bull's eyes. Hemingway called this the moment of truth. 
Because if the bull has been defeated, the bull will just stand there and the matador can look into its eyes. But if the bull has not been defeated and the matador is this far away, the bull only has to do this much and he'll catch the matador here or here or here. Hemingway believed that every single person on earth will at some point in their life face this moment of truth. This moment where they look into the heart of death, the eyes of fear, and realize at that moment what kind of a person they really are, cowardly or courageous. But you very well know, as I do, Christians face this moment all the time. There's an enemy out there who puts this moment in front of us constantly. But Jesus tells us we have freedom from it. If I was holding a small baby here in my arms, a baby so small the baby can't even walk, and if there was a swimming pool next to me filled with water, if I were to take this baby and throw this baby into the swimming pool, for one or two seconds the baby would cough, and then you know what would happen. The baby would start to swim. Because on an instinctive level, the baby already knows how to swim, and the baby has not yet learned to be afraid of the water. Long ago in my own life, I have learned to be afraid of the water that surrounds me here in life. But according to the words of Jesus, repeated again and again, I guess now I'm allowed to learn. I don't have to. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the promises that you give us in Scripture. I thank you, Lord, that you give us freedom from fear if we put our faith in you and if we trust in you for things that are beyond our control. I thank you, Lord, that you know the hearts of every single person here today. You know where they stand, Lord. You know who here is in relationship with you, Lord and who is not. I thank you, Lord, that you give us freedom to enter into a relationship with you simply by believing in what it is that you did for us on the cross, dying for our sins. Thank you, Lord, that we have such wonderful, filling illustrations of this in Scripture. We ask you to give us your wisdom and guidance, Lord, as we continue to learn about you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.